Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. Happy 4th of July if you're American. And a very festive, annoying Colonies Day if you're listening from Britain. This week, we'll be talking about one of my favorite topics, and certainly one of Marie's, that of the giant squid, or kraken. One of the conditions of my having Marie on the show with me, in fact, was covering the giant squid topic at some point. And so this episode is something like a sealed deal for this podcast. Although there will be no actual seals in this episode, at least as far as I can tell so far, looking at a total of three sentences written. Seals aside, we will be doing both a full episode and a roundtable on this topic, so let's get into it. This topic was something that was considered a very real danger to the people who traveled the oceans in search of new lands or new opportunities, with the threat of the unknown rising from the murky depths a serious danger to shipping and commerce, travel of persons, and just communication in general. I think this episode is a pretty apropos one for this celebration here in America at least. Since around this time, I at least get the bug for reading about the 18th century, and so I love to think about and read about the time periods that this particular fear was really significant. And just as a general shout out before I start this episode, if you really want to get into the colonial spirit, I absolutely must suggest you take a look at James Townsend and Son on YouTube with their series 18th Century Cooking. I guess the page on YouTube is actually called Townsend's. But anyways, I've been watching their videos since this time last year. And now I've tried some of the recipes myself and I'm completely hooked. One of the best ones to date is the white pot bread pudding, which seriously comes out tasting like the best French toast you'll ever eat. It is so good and so historical. Anyways, before we start, we have some quick housekeeping as per usual. First, I need to thank everyone who entered the Be a Mad Scientist contest this last month. The winners have been notified and winning packets sent out to them. We will read out their winning entries on the air with next week's roundtable, and we'll put their entries up on the website so everyone can take a look. I was blown away by the quality of entries, and I'm so happy to say that I think this contest can become a regular feature of the show. This month's question is about going into the past and convincing everyone that you are a great and powerful witch or wizard. If you could go into the past with one backpack full of modern day equipment, and you had an introduction with the local leader, be it a queen or king or warlord or whatever, to absolutely prove to them that you were magical, what would you do? What would you bring? I think the time period for this thing should be left up to the reader, but let's say pre-1800s and not so far back that we're like going to cavemen and showing them fire. This is a question I often think about, funnily enough, and I think it's a really fun topic here with a lot of super interesting answers. Anyways, have your entries in before the beginning of August to be considered for some sweet show merchandise and a hand-drawn doodle. Now, one other really exciting thing with our show is that we have recently been asked and have accepted the chance to join the Blank for Non-Blank Network. Now, as you all know, we are very, very proud and very, very happy members of the Dark Myths Collective which I like to think represents the spooky side of our show. 
But on the other hand, we do try to at least have an educational bend. And so maybe that part of the show will be represented by the blank for non-blank network. The idea of this network is to bring podcasters and podcast listeners together in a way that helps them to be educated about topics in entertaining ways that they may not be able to find in other places. So our show has been fit into the category as science for non-scientists, something that I'm particularly proud of and something that's pretty exciting for us here. So head over to the website and take a listen and check out some of these other shows. There's some really cool ones on linguistics, on folklore, on all kinds of different topics. There's even one on my favorite topic, mathematics. So go check it out. And the list of podcasts is always growing. So fingers crossed this will turn into something really cool and something that'll be a really great place for people to go and find new things to learn about. This episode, we will focus on the lore and science of the giant squid, of course. And in the roundtable, we will have an exclusive interview with the head giant squid conspiracy theorist of the Ark, Marie Mayhew, who also happens to be my regular co-host on the roundtables. So prepare the dinghy, slap back those slimy tentacles from the ship's bow, and cackle wildly at the sea for this week's episode of the Mad Scientist Podcast. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Tonight's episode... The Kraken! If you've been paying any attention to the news on the giant squid front, or even just sort of watching the nightly news, you've probably heard the story of the man whose surfboard was grabbed onto by a giant squid. This video has been making the rounds recently, and it's pretty fascinating. The video shows a man on a paddleboard, seemingly with a yellow rope around a pretty huge squid. And the squid sort of is like floating up towards his board and wrapping its tentacles around the surfboard. The video is kind of short, but the description and explanation for it is pretty wacky. It turns out that the paddleboarder, a man named James Taylor, was floating around or whatever you do on a paddleboard off the coast of Cape Town. He and his friends noticed what appeared to be a very large squid with all kinds of injuries like missing tentacles and wounds and cuts and whatever that was floating clearly near death and very lethargic. So when they went near it and tried to touch it and stuff, it didn't really move, which is usually not a great sign for a wild animal. Although no matter how injured the giant sea monster is, I don't suggest you go over and try to poke it or anything. Thinking the squid would likely die from its injuries and not liking to see things die, as he was later quoted as saying, and I'm sure knowing that they are pretty damn rare, he decided to get a rope and tie it around the squid so that he could bring it to shore, in the hope of allowing researchers from the local aquarium, or local squid emporium, I guess, to analyze it. So they roped it, and the squid sort of wrapped its tentacles around this paddleboard, kind of weakly wrapping it around. And once on shore, he killed it to relieve its suffering, and then called up the local aquarium, and, you know, the aquarium evidently was not available, so he decided to do the next logical thing, which is to dissect it himself and take videos of it on his cell phone. Pretty insane option, I would say. Again, like, if you see a wild animal, don't just assume you should kill it, number one. And, I mean, even if it is, like, injured and stuff, you, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky situation here, I guess. But you don't know enough about squids to know that it's about to die. It could be injured, but still able to survive. And then on top of that as well, to dissect it yourself on the beach, as opposed to, say, 
bringing it to a university or I don't know. I just feel like there were other options here. Anyways, when the aquarium said it wasn't available, he dissected it on the spot with his friends and took photos and videos and then sent them afterwards to aquarium researchers. Amazingly and extremely luckily for the scientific community, the evidence that this guy collected was good enough for a definitive identification of the creature as a true giant squid. And the creature was supposedly identified at the time, according to Taylor, by someone from the aquarium, and it was said to be a male. And so males of this species can grow to be nearly 33 feet in length. And since this period, we're not just taking Taylor's word for it. Um, Dr. Mike Vecchione of the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History and Vertebrate Division has now since confirmed that it is most likely a male giant squid. Now, if you watch the video, you're going to see some kind of like the reason that we know it's a male is pretty gross. So if you watch the video, you're going to see that there's actual worm like things squirting from the squid's body. And it turns out that that is actually squid sperm. Which is, yeah, pretty gross, but I guess the best way to identify something is a male. Giant squids, often referred to as krakens in popular culture, have been a really popular mythological creature for nearly as long as we've been recording stories about the sea. The word for kraken, and the general story that's pretty accepted amongst people, comes from ancient Icelandic and Norse stories. Passed around by seafarers and travelers moving about near Greenland and Iceland and Norway. And the word kraken literally translates to, well, there's two translations, but one of the translations is twisted or crooked in Norwegian. The other one being like a terrible fish or a sick fish kind of thing. The first accounts of the kraken come to us like so many other accounts of the ancient world from the Greeks and the Romans. With Aristotle describing a species of giant squid caught by fishermen and Pliny the Elder giving specific dimensions of the creature growing to be as large as 700 pounds and 30 feet long in the first century AD. Interestingly, with the current understanding of the giant squid, the reports from Pliny the Elder have found true scientific support. But the really interesting descriptions of this thing as not just an animal, but as a monster to be feared, come from stories of travelers going through the Greenland Sea and other northern seas, with one of the first written reports coming from the Icelandic saga Orvar Oder, and one of the first scientific, or at least historically scientific, reports coming from the Konungs Skugsia from 1250. In this work, the kraken is described as follows, quote, There is a fish that is still unmentioned, which it is scarcely advisable to speak about on account of its size, because it will seem to most people incredible. There are only a very few who can speak upon it clearly, because it is seldom near land nor appears where it may be seen by fishermen, and I suppose there are not many of this sort of fish in the sea. Most often in our tongue, we call it Hafgufa, Kraken. Nor can I conclusively speak about its length in L's, because the times he has shown before men, he has appeared more like land than like a fish. Neither have I heard that one had been caught or found dead, and it seems to me as though there must be no more than two in the oceans, and I deem that each is unable to reproduce itself, for I believe that they are always the same ones. Then, too, Neither would it do for other fish if the Hafgufa were of such a number as other whales, on account of their vastness and how much subsistence that they need. It is said to be the nature of these fish that when one shall desire to eat, then it stretches up its neck with a great belching, and following this belching comes forth much food, so that all kinds of fish that are near to hand will come to present location, then will gather together, both small and large, believing they shall obtain their food and good eating. 
But this great fish lets its mouth stand open the while, and the gap is no less wide than that of a great sound or bite. And nor the fish avoid running together there in their great numbers. But as soon as its stomach and mouth is full, then it locks together its jaw and has the fish all caught and enclosed that before greedily came there looking for food. End quote. So one thing that's pretty interesting here is that the Kraken isn't really specifically described as anything, right? It's said to be a giant sea creature, but it's not given like tentacle arms or, I don't know, an obvious squid head or even a crab-like body as suggested in some other websites. Here it's kind of described as just kind of like a giant fish with a huge mouth. And so what it's doing as it's coming up is very similar to that of a whale. It's opening its mouth and just kind of letting the other fish flow in. And then because it's so huge, it's just kind of closing its mouth and taking in such a vast amount of food that it doesn't really have to do anything else. And this kind of interestingly speaks to this idea that there were multiple versions of the Kraken at one at any given time. So even within um, even within Norse myths and like the stories of seafarers within Norway and other kind of areas up there near, you know, near the seas of Norway and, and Greenland and all, you know, these really northern seas, there's this idea that there are actually two great sea beasts. One is a giant whale-like creature, and the other is more of that kind of traditional kraken view that we all have in our mind of like a giant squid, right? So quite interesting that this description here doesn't really make any particular claims about the kraken, besides the fact that it's freaking huge and it eats loads of fish. Interestingly, the kraken was described somewhat regularly in the scientific or zoological literature from the 1200s until even the 1750s. And in these cases, it always appears as like a giant squid, with it appearing in the Systema Naturae of 1735 and the Fauna Suissica of 1746, both by Carl Linnaeus. And it was not just researchers from outside of Norway who described this creature. Those within the area that the Kraken supposedly lived also made various descriptions of the creature some of which actually describe it less like a cephalopod or squid, as I was saying, but more like a giant crab than even a giant whale. For instance, Jacob Wallenberg describes in his work from 1781 that the kraken was also known as the crabfish, and that it lived on the seafloor primarily, digesting its catch over long periods of time. So, very similar to how crabs and, like, lobsters actually behave. This digestion would invariably lead to excrement and waste, which would then be eaten and used by surrounding fish colonies. It was these fish colonies that supposedly drew fishermen into such close proximity to the Kraken, in fact, with the areas with the most plentiful fish thought to be right near or on top of the underwater home of the beast down on the sea floor. Interestingly as well, in this version of the Kraken myth, it is the whirlpool caused by the monster coming up and down from the bottom that is the most dangerous to those in boats as opposed to it actually attacking any single ship in particular. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the same time, though, the legend of the more squid-like, 
or at least tentacular Kraken, was believed to be responsible for some ship losses, even up until the 1800s. Although these versions of events were mostly tabloid fodder as opposed to serious zoological or scientific inquiry as they once were. One of the most popular books on cryptozoology, or at least non-mainstream zoology of the time period, was by Eric Pontopadin, whose work The Natural History of Norway argued for the existence of the sea serpent, the kraken, and mermaids within the ocean surrounding Norway to Greenland. But ultimately, as we became better at navigating the ocean, as communication with ocean vessels became significantly easier, and as just more people started making transatlantic or transpacific voyages, the existence of giant sea monsters such as the Kraken became less and less likely. One other huge factor in this shift over was in the discovery of actual specimens of giant squid and colossal squids, with the discovery of the giant squid happening in the 1850s. But the creature didn't leave the popular culture, and in fact, one of the most badass pieces of Kraken imagery from the sonnet The Kraken by Alfred Tennyson wasn't published until 1830. The sonnet goes like this, quote, Below the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep, the kraken sleepeth, fainteth sunlight's flee, about his shadowy sides, above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height, and far away into the sickly light, for many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unnumbered and enormous polypi, Winnow with great arms and slumbering green. There hath he lain for ages, and will lie, batting upon huge sea worms in his sleep, until the latter fire shall heat the deep. Then once by man and angels to be seen, in roaring he shall rise and on the surface die. Fucking heavy metal, man. So good. Anyways, so the Kraken was already pretty famous, but it probably wouldn't have held such huge sway on our cultural consciousness had it not been included in such works as Herman Melville's Moby Dick in 1851, or in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, published in 1870, in which it's depicted as a giant squid or cephalopod in general. And then, of course, there are the works of the Cthulhu mythos, where the aforementioned god monster of the deep is considered to be a thing with a monstrous squid for a face, basically. If you're particularly interested in the works of Lovecraftian horror, by the way, I would point you to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, a really great dark myth show published by our friend D.B. Spitzer. So, modern-day sightings of the Kraken or giant sea serpents are few and far between as you can imagine, although you do get the odd sightings once in a while for a huge sea monster. For instance, in 2016, there was a sort of funny period of time where my mom kept forwarding me stories about the giant squid people had photographed on Google Earth, which was 120 meters long. And people to this day online claim the thing was real, and that the Kraken is really out there. Despite the fact that, like, it was almost immediately proven to be a well-known rock outcropping known as Sail Rock. Alright, so the Kraken almost certainly doesn't exist. Although to be fair, we haven't mapped out or explored even half of the ocean's total volume at this point in time. So who knows? Maybe there is a colony of them sitting on the bottom, feeding massive fish colonies with their bowel movements. And if we don't kill them off with plastic, or oil spills, or pharmaceutical runoff, or rapidly rising ocean temperatures, or algae blooms, or just sheer nuclear apocalypse by the time we have the technology to explore the entire ocean, we may just get to see one. But Besides krakens, 
there are real giant squids and real colossal squids out there. And their discovery, like I said earlier, probably had a lot to do with our relatively quiet sea monster news front today. So first off, what are giant squid and what are colossal squid? The giant squid is a species of squid within the genus Architeuthis. It was first scientifically classified by Steenstrup in 1857, after writing a number of scientific studies on the creatures throughout the 1850s. This coincided with the finding of pieces of giant squid, and sometimes nearly whole specimens that washed ashore in Newfoundland through the 1850s to early 1900s. Although, of course, with the technology of the time, these specimens were pretty quickly degraded and ended up being useless for further study. It wasn't until 2004 that a really well-preserved and intact specimen was claimed, with a giant squid caught by a fishing boat off the Falkland Islands being transported to the Darwin Center of the London Natural History Museum. Today, there are nearly 700 giant squid specimens in scientific collections around the world, supposedly, with 30 of them actually shown in museums or aquariums, which is pretty amazing, honestly. But throughout all of this time in trying to find a giant squid, the specimens were often found either in the stomachs of washed-up sperm whales or as degraded pieces that floated to shore, something that likely made the story of truly massive giant squid seem even more likely to people in the past, but something that made studying them very, very difficult. It wasn't until relatively recently, actually, that these things were photographed or videotaped, though, and studying of live specimens is still extremely difficult. The first photographs of the giant squid were taken in 2004, and Japanese zoologist Tsunami Kubodera obtained the first video of the species in 2006. Mr. Kubodera is also famous for taking the first video of a giant squid in its natural habitat, which he did with the National Geographic documentary crew in tow in 2012. And just think about it, right? It is extremely hard to even track animals in the woods outside of your home, right? You might see squirrels, but there isn't really a whole lot of evidence of squirrel activity unless you're really looking for it very, very hard, right? Like how many, okay, like roadkill, you find a lot of dead squirrels, but how many dead squirrels or dead raccoons or dead beavers or even dead birds do you actually find just like laying around in the wild, right? It's pretty hard to find these animals, especially in something like the ocean where we don't know where to look. There's so much open volume and things float down to the bottom, right? So it's, it's really, really hard, you can imagine, to research these animals that don't necessarily come to the surface all that often. And one thing that makes studying giant squid so particularly difficult is their natural habitat, which we frankly don't even know for certain, but which we suspect is between 300 and 1,000 meters deep. Although it isn't confined to one particular ocean, it's this depth and also the relative lack of our knowledge about when they appear and what their behavior is generally that makes catching them on film so difficult. So some researchers have attempted to follow sperm whales, which are one of the few animals known to predate on adult giant squids. Although again, just imagine how comically difficult that must be given our current undersea technology. Like we're following an animal that we can't really follow all that well in the first place to get to an animal that we've hardly ever videotaped. It's, it's like finding a needle in a ginormous haystack. And a haystack that wants to kill you with pressure and lack of oxygen and sharks and all kinds of things. Ultimately, the team led by Mr. Kotobera found success by mimicking the bioluminescence of squid that the giant squid feeds on, as well as providing smaller squid species as bait. 
But again, just the cost alone of getting to this depth for extended periods is extremely prohibitive. For example, the cost of James Cameron to get down to the Marianas Trench was around $8 million and took like two and a half hours one way and got him to a depth of around 11,000 meters or for my non-scientist American listeners, about 36,000 feet. So yeah, all things considered more than a poor zoologist or even a relatively rich zoology department can afford most likely. In fact, I was looking into this for this episode. Research dollars for ocean exploration are around $23.7 million every year, with NASA's budget just for space exploration coming in at $3.8 billion. And the ocean is a hell of a lot closer and doesn't have nearly as great PR people. It's been estimated that we've only explored around 5% of the total volume of the ocean, so there's still a lot out there to explore. And although I'm sure a lot of my listeners would argue that space may yield a lot more interesting finds, and that the ability to travel in space may yield similar openings in ocean travel, it's still pretty crazy to see the stark difference in funding. Okay, so the giant squid is freaking impossible to study, but what we have found out is pretty amazing still. Like other squids, they are composed of a mantle, arms, and tentacles. The mantle is the head bit, which has a beak in it and the very complex nervous system. The arms are the shorter squiggly bits, and the tentacles are the longer bits here. And in terms of total length, it is the tentacles that really make this thing so long. The giant squid is second only to the colossal squid in terms of length and mass, for invertebrates anyways. And we're going to talk about the colossal squid soon, I promise. The giant squid can grow to around 13 meters or 43 feet for females, and 10 meters or 33 feet for males, from mantle to the tip of the longest tentacles. So these things are pretty long, and they can grow to sizes of around 600 pounds for the females and about 330 pounds for the males. And the giant squid has massive eyeballs as well, nearly the size of 27 centimeters or 11 inches in diameter, allowing them to see bioluminescence in the deep sea. Each tentacle and arm is lined as well with circular suckers, with sharp teeth made up of chitin along the outer circumference of the suckers. Like other squids, they propel themselves forward using a water jet and can shoot ink if provoked, although with giant arms full of sucking teeth-lined circles, who would want to mess with a giant squid anyways? So they're big, and they're freaky, but they're not particularly commonly found with humans. So it's likely that these creatures never attacked humans in the past, and certainly weren't sucking down entire ships into the murky depths. Sorry, Marie. Now, the largest squid we know of to date is the Colossal Squid also known as the Antarctic squid. This thing is even rarer than the giant squid, growing to an estimated size of 46 feet long or 14 meters and masses of 7,650 pounds or 750 kilograms. Only a very small number of colossal squid have ever been found, with the first reported specimen found in 1925 as remains within a sperm whale. The largest colossal squid ever found was discovered in 2007, when fishermen off the coast of Antarctica in the Ross Sea caught one by accident while fishing. When they couldn't get it to let go of their catch, they figured that they would catch this thing, and thankfully had the foresight to freeze it after bringing it on board. The specimen is pretty much the source for the majority of our knowledge about colossal squid, and it along with other specimens caught in the Antarctic seas have allowed us to make estimates of their maximum size. But again, as far as I can tell, there have been less than 50 specimens of this species ever found or caught so what we know about these things is pretty limited. 
One interesting fact, though, is that while the giant squid may have sharp teeth lined suckers on their tentacles and arms, the colossal squid has the teeth, the suckers, and rotating hook-like sharp teeth as well. So just another layer of terror for your deep sea dive. Honestly, I'm pretty excited to see what other discoveries are made on this species in the future. And with our ability to go deeper into the sea for longer periods of time moving ever forward, I hope that these discoveries will happen within my lifetime. So what is it about the giant squid that is so terrifying and mystifying? What are some of the best myths and stories out there about this creature? And what can it tell us about modern myths about travel, giant serpents, and other scary stuff in the dark places of the universe? And what about the link to other cephalopods? Things like nautilus or even things like cuttlefish, which are extremely intelligent. Could there be some kind of giant, supersized cuttlefish out there plotting its revenge on the human race? Well, since this is a favorite topic of Marie's, we've decided to do a roundtable on this episode's continuation, and we're hoping we will get one of our fellow podcast researchers on the air along with us. It's going to be great, and I hope you come along for the ride. Before we finish this episode, though, I wanted to leave you with a pretty amazing Amazon review left on a book about the giant squid that we were going to buy for this episode, titled The Search for the Giant Squid. The Biology and Mythology of the World's Most Elusive Sea Creature. It's the sort of review that wonderful screenplays are made of, and was rated as helpful to me by this podcast host. It goes as follows, quote, I have been intrigued for many years by the giant squid. I love calamari, and I make a marinated squid dish that is truly terrific. So when I read this book and realized how little marine biologists really know about the giant squid, and even little squids it seems, I was a bit disappointed. I was also disappointed to learn that they rarely, if ever, show up in the northwest waters of the United States. The book is about as well written as it could be about a subject of which so little is known. But at least I now know as much about the creature as anyone else. Great cocktail conversation, eh? End quote. And with that, thank you again for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I am your host, Chris Cogswell, and I will be back next week with a roundtable going even further in depth on the Kraken other cephalopods, its connection to other sea creatures, deep sea gigantism and other forms of gigantism, and all sorts of other great, crazy things. If you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon, giving us a review on iTunes or Audioboom, or just telling your friends and family about the show. Thank you again for making this show, and all the great times I have making it, possible. See you next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. (laughs) I've never done it. (laughs) Right.